So uh, what I want to talk about tonight, we are going to end up in the book of John, but uh, like somebody getting tools out and it takes quite a while for them to do a job um, or like uh, getting all the things, all the ingredients out before they begin cooking and you're thinking, man, this is taking a long time to get where we're going. I'd like you to be with me as I set the tools out for what we're going to do. Because I think it's really important. So uh, when John said we're talking about healthy churches, we're actually going to shrink that down right now because healthy churches are made up of healthy church members. And they also have uh, healthy elders in the church. But tonight we're talking about healthy church members. So if you want to shrink down a big subject, which is the church down to, we're going to be talking about you tonight. But we're starting in, I think, the appropriate place to start, which is we're starting with God and who God is. So Genesis 1.1, if you could follow along with me, we're going to track through, a, we're laying out tools here, so we're track through a bunch of stuff fairly quick. Moses wrote this, and it says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Uh, the, we sang earlier about Yahweh. Yahweh is uh, the, that name does not appear in the first chapter. Over and over, this name appears. God, 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 God. So much so that that should be the overwhelming thing you're thinking of when you finish Genesis chapter 1, is God is everything. The word is unique. Uh, Hebrew has a way of having an ending on a word, and, a, and an ending can make it plural. So El is a word for God, but Elohim is God, but it's a plural ending. So you would put it on things when you have more than one. So the question right from the beginning is, Moses has chosen to use a word about God that indicates more than one. So you'll get arguments from scholars about this, and arguments are that's a royal we, they would say later on. Like, it, like the Queen of England would say, we don't like M&Ms, something like that. And uh, the problem is with that thought, Hebrew never does that. Hebrew doesn't use a royal we, so that's not an option for it. The question, the reason people struggle with this is, did, did Moses know God was more than one? Because in their mind, the Trinity is an apostolic concept. He couldn't have known it. And the argument would be, wouldn't that be strange if you met somebody and the most significant part of their character they never introduced till thousands of years later? Wouldn't that be strange if the people of God never knew that fact about God? So we have this name of God. Then we get to verse 26 and it says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Right, right there you see the us and the our and you say that's more than one. People have said well this could be a heavenly council like God and the angels but people are never said to be made in the image of angels. In fact if somebody preached that uh, that would be a very short sermon hopefully for that person. The, the idea then is that God is say, saying I am a community. I am a we. So he goes on and it says, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. He's singular and yet he's plural. So from the very beginning, the Bible's giving an idea about 
God and that God is a community. And people are made in the image of God. What this means then is a very, uh, very, if you, if you want to say it, uh, American or John Wayne-ish or Indiana Jones-ish, Jones-ish mentality of somebody of, I am going to do this Christian thing, is not reflecting the living God whose community and the parts of the Godhead are working together in perfect order all the time. So from the very beginning, we see something about people is that God created people in his image so they're supposed to reflect who God is and who he is is at his core. He's community working together. So we start there and this continues on. You see this over and over when Adam and Eve eat of the fruit, when they're going to uh, be driven from the garden because God loves them. It says uh, in in verse 22 of chapter 3, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand. So he again repeats it when uh, in Genesis chapter 11, when the people build the Tower of Babel, they're told, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. And uh, they don't do that. They say, Let us make a name for ourselves. We're going to make a tower reaching to heaven. And so let us make a name for ourselves. It's a joke kind of in the Hebrew because what it says is the Godhead is saying, let us go down. They say, let's build a tower up. And the Godhead said, let us go down and see what they've done. Almost like they had to squint to see it. They couldn't quite see it. You're not supposed to say, can God see everything? He, of course, can see everything. He's making fun of mankind in their refusal to live like he's called. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. Don't make a name for yourself. My name is supposed to be spread everywhere and not just my name, my image. So where you go, a reflection of me goes and at its very essence, that would include a reflection of community going wherever people are to go. So we're going to skip a bunch of chapters. We're going to get up to the book of Psalms. So Psalm chapter 1 talks about the blessed man. And he is one who meditates on God's word day and night. We like to read that and we like to say, that's me. I'm the blessed man or the blessed woman. I'd just suggest our first thought is supposed to be, that's my king. My king is the blessed man. And I am part of, look down in the psalm, the congregation of the righteous that shows up later. It happens over and over in the psalms. One person is suffering. All of a sudden, you got a big group of people. And you go, where'd those people come from? How did that happen? Psalm 2 comes up. And it talks about the Lord has a son. It says, verse 7, I will tell the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son Today I've begotten you. This is quoted in the book of Acts. This is a reference to the Lord Jesus, but it's also a reference to the people of God. So one of my friends has said it. If you want to think of the Psalms, it almost has like a software version, version 1.0 and version 2.0. It's two readings. Reading 1.0 is Psalm 2 is about the Christ. 
Reading 2.0 is, I'm in the Christ, so this is also about me. But not me by myself. Me as community, me. A way of thinking about an us, first and foremost. So, it says then, The Lord said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. That's used of Christ. It's also used of the church. So, who is the Son of God? It's Jesus. It's also his people because we reflect the image of God and we are in him. Uh, Psalm 22 is a psalm that we might use maybe at Easter time. It's the one Jesus quotes from the cross. And he says, my God, my God, why, did you, why have you forsaken me? And he says these different things. He is, as you read this, all alone in the psalm. He's suffering all alone. He's looking. He's been deserted by everyone. But all of a sudden, in verse 21, he's delivered. It says, save me from the mouth of the lions. He's crying out, save me, and then he's saved. Right in the middle of 21, I have a line in my Bible, actually, and I just wrote hinge, like the door shut right there, or the door opened. However you want to say it, the psalm changed right there. And then he says, you have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I've been saved. What's the very next thing you read about? This one person who's all alone suffering, he's been saved. He says, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. All of a sudden, this one person is delivered and there's a creation of a people. And when the Lord Jesus was raised from the dead, that's exactly what happened. The very first thing he told the women who appeared to him was, go tell my brothers. A congregation was created. So there's a particular word, a Greek word, ekklesia. And if you never have to know how to pronounce these things because nobody knows how to pronounce these things because none of us lived back then. People might say ekklesia. It doesn't matter. They've changed how they think these things are pronounced. And actually one way they've changed it is they found a bunch of letters from people. It's clear that people couldn't read. And they're spelling things phonetically and they're like, oh, we've been pronouncing this probably really weird, these words. It doesn't matter. But people have said before, this word that's used of church, it's the word used congregation here, means called out ones. You've probably heard that before. And they've said, well, that's the implication. We're called out from the world. I think the better Bible dictionaries would say that's probably not what it's saying. Because if you think about it, when God created Adam and Eve, they were what he imagined as the normal. This is what it's supposed to look like. The reason this word is used is because this is the word for an assembly with a recognized membership and active participation. The Greeks used this word. So when there was a group and people were actively involved in it, they would say ekklesia. And they would say this is a group that comes together and the members actually participate in this group. So how many of you belong to Sam's Club? Anybody here? My mom is the Costco evangelist, somebody said. (laughs) How many of you belong to Costco? Okay, so what do they require of you? 
on money. What do they? No, honestly, what do you have to do to be a member? Pay money. How often do you have to be there? Whenever you feel like it. Tomorrow? Do you have to go tomorrow? Do you have to go on Saturdays? Do you have to go once a year? Okay, so you, you get a card, though you have to pay for your card, correct? And that makes you a member. And you are just as much a member as somebody who goes every Saturday at 10 o'clock and has the, is it, how much is the hot dog that they sell there? The famous hot dog. It's like 50 cents in the corner. The, um, so you're just as much a member, right? No difference. And they will treat you no different because you are fully 100% Sam's Club or Costco, and you can belong to both, right? It's like, how many of you have ever taken an Uber cab? All of them have Lyft things in, the, in their window because they all are members of two cab share, ride share companies, and they can do that. They like to do that. The question is, is that what it means to be part of the church? So I say I'm part of the church. I like this church. It's in my neighborhood. The parking lot's big. I like this fits. The programs are perfect. I'm going to join this church. Can I join it? Are the expectations the same as Sam's Club? Are they, how are they different? Some, think about what, what is different. Well, the meaning here of this word was a congregation of Christians, so a church, congregation of Christians implying interacting membership. Not just membership, but interacting membership. So membership that somehow is blurring together. So the word can be used in Lots of ways. It can be used of the church universal. All of the churches can be described as the church of Jesus Christ. Interacting membership. It's interesting though, the commands in the New Testament don't allow you to stay in that category. They demand interaction on a level where you actually face to face with somebody and not with an imaginary church that is a universal concept. You actually have to, for instance, love one another. I actually have to have somebody that I can choose to love or not love. And that demands a local context of a church. Has to be. So the church has a universal expression, all the people of God, but then it has a local expression. One reason this Greek word was chosen, I'm sure, is because it was used of the congregation of Israel in the Old Testament. So one of the greatest curses you could hear if you were an Israelite, is the one who does this will be cut off from his people. Happens over and over in the book of Moses. If you do this, you will be cut off from the people. Another thing that happens is you see one person doing an action and all of the people are impacted in the group. So for instance, Achan, when they go into Jericho, Achan sees some things he likes and he takes them, he takes some money, he takes some clothing, he buries them in his tent. Then, all of Israel is defeated in the next battle. And you think, well, how is that fair? One person sinned. Well, the actions of one impact everyone, and one reason is we're a reflection of the Trinity. Of course we relate to each other. Our actions have to relate to each other. We're not separate like, I'll come in with my strength 
all by myself. You have your strength all by yourself and we don't impact each other at all. It's no, our lives are mixing together and actually it's a very dangerous, radical concept, isn't it? Because it means we shape what the church looks like. If I am unhealthy, I am impacting everybody. And the same with you. If I am strong, if I bring strength, it makes you stronger. That's the very nature of it. So the nature of the Godhead is not that the members are warring with each other, but they are working together in perfect unity all the time, each one perfectly knowing their roles. Jesus says, I don't do anything except what the Father has told me. All of the time, every time. And if you think, wow, that sounds like bondage, Jesus would say, that's freedom. If you want to see what it looks like to not do that, start in Genesis chapter 3 and look what happens when Adam and Eve decide not to live in unity with, with God. So they, something that you find frequently in the Old Testament is you find the people being counted. There were 400,000 men. There were 30,000 men of war. There were this many people. There were that many people. Why does it matter? What matters is the king matters, priests matter, prophets matter, these offices, but the people matter considered as a whole. And one person in it can be the person that tanks everything. So I'll give you an example of this from a different example. Anybody here ever run cross country before? So the way cross country works is they score it based on how you finish in a race. And then they just add up the top five scores. So if you got first place, second place, third place, fourth place, fifth place, what do all those numbers add up to? One plus two plus three plus four plus five. What does that make? 15. 15 is the best score you could ever get. Okay? That'd be a really good cross-country team because it means you took first place, second place. If you take first place, second place, third place, fourth place, 57th place, what did you just score? Do you think you win then? What happens? This actually, I was just reading about the Minnesota State cross-country meet. That happened this year. You read about this team and you say, they slaughtered everybody and they didn't win. Why? Because every single member is contributing, and the ones who finish first, second, third, fourth, who are they most concerned about? They're concerned about the weakest link because that runner matter. We will not win if that runner doesn't get faster somehow. That runner is very important. It doesn't mean they have to win, but somehow... You look at it and say, what a great team. And that team right now is saying, I know what they're saying over the summer, if it was younger people, we've got to work on number five. Well, in the church, we're not supposed to look around. You're not supposed to point at somebody right now and go, you're number five. (laughs) But in the church, it's the same way. It's like Akinson. We get pulled to a level because we say, I don't matter. I can be what I want to be. But if we remember that we're created in the image of God, what we do does matter, and we're called to relate. In fact, we're not even gifted 
like I've got all the super gifts all by myself so I don't need you. The gifts are purposely spread out so that we have to have each other. In fact, Paul uses language like it's like your body. You have certain parts of your body you cover up more than other parts. Like you treat your body different knowing each part is special in some way. So, like a cross-country meet, every single person in this church matters. You can't say, I hope the leaders really get it straight. Tomorrow when we ordain elders, boy, it's really important that they're healthy. It is really important. But what happens if they are and you're not? What does that look like? Does it matter? So now that we've just talked about this a little bit, the idea of a people and a people together, the Lord's Supper is a perfect picture of this. You have one loaf. But you have this loaf is being partaken of by the many. Christ feeds all of us. We are unified in it, even though we are different. Ned has said very often that uh, if I refuse to come into the church, uh, my gifts are not my own and I'm hurting the whole church. Because I'm withholding something that the church needs. It's selfishness to the very end. So I am saying, I am not going to participate. It's like a guy with the best tool for a certain job, and he's saying, I will not help you with it, and I will not share my tool. It is exactly what the world is like, but it's not what the Church of Jesus Christ is to be like. So I want to go to John chapter 13. So the idea, though, is, we already said, is a community, a people, and a people like the Trinity and us, a we. In fact, it's a first thought. So when we think about ourselves as believers, we is the first thought, I is the second thought, but I is part of the thought. So for instance, we as the cross-country team, that's the big thought. I matter though, because if I don't do my training, then I'm going to bring the whole team down with me. That's the idea. So John chapter 13, Jesus is in the upper room and um, he has his disciples with him. In this particular chapter, he has uh, Judas Iscariot here. So it's a mixed company right now. He has the 12, 11 plus Judas. John's writing is stunning John writes in a way that um, none of the other gospel writers are quite like him. You're going to find it out in this first paragraph. It says here, Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So the sentence is actually a simple sentence. And it, the sentence is this. Before the feast of the Passover, Jesus loved his people to the end. That's the simple sentence. Jesus loved the disciples to the end. And you say, to the end of what? To the end of his life? Or to the end, like to the end of all possibility, to the utmost is the idea. He stretched out love as far as it possibly can be stretched. And this is classic John because you have to stop and think, what does it mean? You loved him to the end. And John would say, what do you think it means? That's how he writes. He would push you. But he didn't just say, 
he inserts two thoughts. So he says, before the feast of Passover, comma, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, comma, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Something is in Jesus knowledge-wise that's driving his actions. And the knowledge is this. I'm leaving this world and I'm going to the Father. And I have done this in the past. I have loved these ones. I will love them to the end. I, as we go along here, I just want to make a correlation. We read these sto- this story about Christ. He's going to want us to connect his actions to our actions later on and say, imitate me. If we base our actions merely on, I'm going to do that. That's a good thing to do. The elders are telling us to do it. I'm going to do this. And not on what Jesus is doing, which is this. Something is changing and I'm going to the Father. For us, I recognize Jesus did something and went to the Father. That's driving actions I had. And I've done it in the past, but I'm going to do it to the end. I'm going to finish my work. So, goes on. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He did it again. Jesus rose from supper. That's the simple sentence. Jesus rose from supper. But he's rising from supper because of something inside of him, and it's this. Knowing the Father had given all things into his hands, He's come from God and is going back to God. He knows something about his authority and he knows his place in the universe and because of that, he is going to do something very menial and servant-like. Get up. And this probably solves something if people are thinking he had no idea how demeaning this is and if Jesus really knew that this was servant-like, he wouldn't have done it. The author is proving, John is proving, no, he knew exactly who he was. He knows all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me because of what's just going to happen. And that's exactly why I'm doing what I'm doing. That's why I'm serving like this. Then it says, he laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. This is... Um, It's easy to pick on Peter here. uh, Peter almost becomes the voice of us, though, frequently, doesn't he? He says the things we would have done, which is this, don't do that. Don't do that. I don't want you to do that. And Peter has something that he's constantly doing, which is trying to control the Lord and tell him what to do. It's something that, that um, even when Jesus tells him, cast the nets on the other side, Peter says, all right, I fished all night. He just has to let him know, I'm the expert fisherman, but since you say so, I'll do it. He has to always interject, I am the boss, 
but I'll let you be the boss for a little bit. Like you can be the pretend boss for a little bit. And even here, Peter says, no, you're not going to wash me. So Jesus says to him, uh, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my feet. He's still not doing it. He's still controlling Jesus, trying to. Okay, well, you're going to do it this way then. This is what it's going to look like. Think about the disciples. What is the number one thing they talk about on the road as they follow Jesus? Okay, who's the greatest? How many times do you think they did this? It was like the constant conversation, right? And we read that. Uh, by, the, by the way, the disciples also were behind the writing of the Gospels. And they purposefully included those things in the Gospels. They wanted you to know that about themselves. We always used to argue about that. Because we always thought we were the greatest and we had to be one-upping each other all the time. Peter would not have washed anybody else's feet. And he thinks Jesus should be like him. So in his economy, Jesus, I'm like this. That's kind of inappropriate what you're doing. Let's not do that. Even though everybody else has already been washed. So could you see what would just happen there? Peter's the one guy who didn't need to get washed by Jesus because he was holy enough to stop him. It's almost like we're still playing the game here. And Jesus says, if I don't do this, you have zero part in me. Peter still doesn't let it go. But here's the weird thing. Jesus still washes his feet. And in those conversations on the road, he still loves them even though they continually go back to this default argument about who's the greatest and are always doing this with each other. Jesus said to him, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray, uh, betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. So now he's talking in plural now. You are clean. But he also said, you've had a bath, but your feet are dirty, and I need to wash them. Just uh, thinking people have pondered this before. Uh, so it's very common. You wore open sandals. You walk through the city streets. You're going to get dirty and dusty. So it's normal, even if you cleaned up for supper, for someone to wash your feet. We don't do that anymore. So you might in some parts of the world. But what people have wrestled with is he transferred the conversation to cleanness, but it's clear he's talking about spiritual cleanness. So the washing he's talking about is a spiritual kind of washing, that's not the total washing of somebody. It's a foot washing of somebody. Like a, you've gotten dirty as you've trudged along and I will help you where you've gotten. I'm going to help clean you off. That's the idea. You don't need a total bath, but boy, seems like something's going on that we need to deal with. And Jesus is saying that's not a servant's job. That's a family member's job. That's a son's job. It's the son's job in the family to wash people's feet so they're totally clean, so they can have a share of the Savior. So, when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I've done to you? 
You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. You ought to do it. And actually, this would be a soft version of a command. It's a command. You need to wash each other's feet. You have to do this. Well, one implication of this is this. If I'm going to wash your feet, I actually have to be present where you are with you so that I can wash your feet. Foot washing cannot happen when we never get together. Foot washing happens when you actually come together. He says, you ought to do this. It's a command. That's what he's doing. You have to do this. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. So here is a question for us, the people of God here in Dayton. This church is... Would you say you, as a member of this church, do this? I'm not looking for you to raise your hand. I want you to think about it. I have to think about it in terms of the people I'm with. Do I actually wash people's feet? And I I would just suggest... We have all sorts of cultural pressures, just like the pressure Jesus felt that keeps us from doing this. And because of that, it hinders everybody's walk with the Lord. So the cultural pressure for Jesus was this. That's beneath you. Don't do that. Don't, please, please, please don't wrap that towel around you and don't wash my feet. Let's just go on. And live with our dirty feet. That's the story. Peter's saying, my dirty feet are fine. Let's just live with them. And Jesus is saying, they're not fine. Even though you've had a bath, you need to wash your feet. So let's play it out. What could it look like? It looks like this. We have a people. We relate to each other. We're supposed to do this with each other. And I have a friend who is clean, he knows the Lord, he loves the Lord. And I just realized, John, you got dirty feet. There's something here, life-wise, spiritually-wise, that needs to be dealt with. What are my options right now? One is, don't do that. Don't lower yourself to... Just don't get involved. And that, I would say, is where we want to go. The pressure internally is to not do what our Lord did. Don't do that. That's going to be embarrassing for them. And it's going to be embarrassing for you. And it's going to create a sticky situation, right? What are we supposed to do? What does love look like? Love looks like this. John, I've just noticed the way you talk to Emily. Can I talk to you about that a little bit? And they, oh man, what happens next? I just opened myself up to get blasted by somebody when we were in a perfect relationship up till that point. But the question is, were we in a perfect relationship? Or was I thinking, no, there's something real that should be dealt with? And if I won't do my part and go to my brother 
Is that love or is it something else? It's, it's, and is it love for Emily at that point, let's say? The hard thing for all of us is this can go south very quickly, can it? And we'd say it's just not, it's just not worth it. It's not worth doing that. And so what we start doing is, uh, I remember I talked to John one time about that. You remember how that went. And so he gets to live like he is. And I have a thought about him, about his dirty feet. But whose problem is it? Remember we talked about like Aiken's sin? Who does it impact? Everybody. And because I'm accepting of his sin and not willing to deal with it, do you notice what's going on with the dirty feet story? Is this is now something that I'm having a problem with because I won't do what I should do. The nature of the church is a, the world does not, so Costco does not make you, in this terminology, wash your feet when you come in, right? All they make you do is show your card, maybe. But even that, you can get away without showing your card, I think. So what about us? Are you a foot washer? It's a fair question. And if you think, no, I'm not doing that. It's too hard. You don't have a free pass. It's a command from the Lord. It didn't come as a command. He says, you ought to do it. You should do it. It's love. Now the passage goes on and Judas is driven out of the room uh, by Satan. And uh, he goes on to uh, Jesus. He returns back to them. and, And it says here, When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. So glory is weight. That's the idea. The weightiness of somebody. Now is the Son of Man glorified. Now, at this time period, the death, resurrection of Christ, the full weight of the Son of God has come. Well, what's the full weight in context? The full weight in context is somebody who's serving his people and cleaning them wholly so they can live rightly before God and he can be fully celebrated and worshiped in all the earth. God's full weight coming here. He says, if God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you, you will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I'm going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now it is a command. So not before it was a you ought to, now it's a, it's a command, love one another. What does love look like? In the context of this chapter, what does love look like? Say it looks like humbling yourself. So that part of I will do something I really wouldn't want to do on my own, but it's what a servant would do because servants go to the spot of It's like if you saw the toilet was plugged here and you go, what would a servant do? 
go find a plunger somehow and deal with it. So what do I do when my brother is wrestling with sin? What does it look like? I'm not saying he's not saved. It says I would look like, John, I got to talk to you. What does it do love-wise for the people? So think about the disciples. Now, after Jesus did this, do you think they disliked Jesus after this? Or do you think they loved him more and in a deeper and a newer way? I would say that. Their relationship went to a new place because of this foot washing that had happened. My encouragement now for this particular church is this. A bunch of people here. People I trust most, maybe all of you, believers, you've been washed clean by the Lord Jesus Christ. You love him. All of you live in the world. All of you, just like I do. All of you, in that sense, walk around in open-toed shoes all the time. And you pick up things all the time. How do we, as a church, show the world love? By washing each other's feet. That's how. That's what a healthy church looks like. The weird thing is the healthy church is the messiest church professionally, though, if you just said programmatically, because this doesn't sound like a neat program to be part of. It would be if you just said, hey, we have foot washing at nine and we never got in your life. All we did was just get water on your feet because I'm not getting in your life and I'm not nervous about what's going to happen. This demands the work of the Holy Spirit because I'm saying, oh, Lord, there's got to be a miracle here today. Would you help me in this conversation? And I also have my own dirty feet. And when I humble myself this way, I'm also showing I get what it's like and I'm posturing myself that way. So a couple things have to happen for this. One is you actually have to come. This doesn't work if you never come. So if you don't relate together, you can't just wander up to somebody on the street who you don't know and say, hey, I wanted to talk to you about your life. That doesn't work. It works when people know he actually does love me. He cares for me. Boy, I bet that's hard. You also have to have something in you like Jesus did with Peter, which is this. It might go south. It's okay. You still ought to do it. It's a commandment. So love, loving each other, that part. The question is, do I do it? Am I willing to do it? That conversation. I remember somebody I had a conversation with a while back. Went to their house and the person said to me, so just really hard conversation. And the person said to me, so all this stuff, and I'm just walking through some scripture about something. And the person said to me, I just need to know what you think of me. And it was just such a surprising thing. And I said, I'm here. Not one of those people you say are your friends are here. I'm here. This is what love looks like. It's not what I want to do. Like, yeah, my, it's, yeah, all I want to do is drive around and tell people, I'm here because I love you. I'm here. Actually had to come. Actually had to do it. Didn't want to do it. And that night didn't go super well. But the Lord worked a miracle and softened, just like the miracle with Peter. Peter, I don't think, got it this night because at the end of the night, he's still bragging about, if everybody denies you, I'm not going to do it. 
and say, Peter, it seems like you need another foot washing. Like this did not go well. But that's what we do, right? So am I doing it? Am I willing to do it? Or if I say, no, I prefer a Costco Sam's Club type membership. I want to be part of it, but I don't want to do it. And that's true. If you walk into a Costco and the stuff falls on the floor, you go, I don't work here. It's not my job. I can leave. Here, though, you'd say, I'm part of this. These are my people. You matter to me. And so your feet matter to me. Your walk matters to me. It's how we stay holy. Can you imagine if somebody had said to Achan, when they saw him eyeing up the gold, Achan, can I talk to you before you shove that in your tent? It's going to impact everybody. I don't know how you guys do attendance-wise, fellowship-wise, but this doesn't work for a people who don't actually fellowship. You don't sign up for foot washing like Who's part of the 9 a.m. foot wash? It happens because of relationship. That's how it happens. And boldness. When Paul says frequently, pray for me that I might be bold, this is one of those things as, whoa, I don't want to do that. It's going to take some bravery to be that. But I'm willing to do it. The Godhead never does this. Why? Because at least symbolically, all the members of the Trinity walk with perfectly clean feet all the time. We don't. We need it. I asked John if he would close tonight. I said, John, especially things like this, I don't know all of you in this way, what you are like together, what your health is in this area, but it's really important. So John, if you could close us. Yeah. Yes. Uh, go a little further with that. I think that is, it is really important. Yeah. Right. And, you know, Paul tells Timothy, don't sharpen rebuke an elder man. So, I, you know, I think there's a way you would appeal. Like if Stephen is the head of the campus ministry, you might not confront him the same way you would, you know, want to, you know, like your, you know, guys that just got saved together or something. But you still can. It's just you do it a little bit more humbly and respectfully. I, I use it when I'm confronting a leader. I usually go up. Give some room for grace, like, well, I may be wrong, but this is what I'm thinking, or something like that. I say it a little more humbly sometimes, but I still say it. I think that's it's really good. We, how do I posture myself, especially? If I have a like almost a flinch reaction, if anybody ever says something about me, I get that. I'd never, like Peter in this chat, I'd never do that. I'd never deny you. So what can it be, even prayer-wise, to prepare myself of, Lord, would you soften my heart so that I can receive foot washing from people? Because I think the, because of the fall, 
Left to ourselves, all of us are very Peterish in our response. We will not like it, and either you'll not like it by getting big, or you'll not like it by stuffing something on the inside and, and being mad and carrying an offense, but you maybe never would tell people. But what happens is even though you may attend the church, you're not together in the church anymore. So I think you're right. How do I prepare my heart to be washed? My feet to be washed is really important. And we all need that too. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Listen to what we had to say. They didn't agree. They didn't humble themselves. That, that, that was kind of a waste of time. Uh, a week later, we found out they had, after they got past their initial emotional, emotional reaction, they had reconsidered and humbled themselves. And this is what we said. That's. That's really helpful, and, and actually we see it played out in Peter. It didn't go well with Peter, and actually the chapter doesn't end well with Peter, too. He's still posturing himself in a way you'd say, you, re, you need a lot of work. So we have to be prepared. Before, John, before you, I just, so for Ned and Rick, just quick thought from both you guys, just about this thought. Just because you've been and seen lots of churches, lots of ways. Just what are you thinking right now, Ned? That's really, it's really good. So that was uh, the book of Luke says that part about Jesus' words to Peter is that Satan demanded you and, and you say, oh man, that happened while the foot washing was happening at the same time. So Jesus knew Peter's going to fall and he's going to fall really hard and he's still doing this and he's still calling him clean at the same time. Rick, just what are you thinking? Generally, in my experience, 
somebody comes and is going after something in your life, right or wrong, there's probably a grain of truth there someplace that I try to say, say God, what is it that you want me to get out of that? Right. No. Right. And that is really good. I, I want to receive things early because it'll get worse and worse and worse. And it's going to impact more and more people. All right, John. I, by the way, the last song we sang went directly down these roads. I don't know if you noticed that. This is a, this is a very good Bible here. Um, it, there's nothing I need to add to what we talked about tonight, but I did have one or two direct applications that I just thought would be interesting. A lot of people make a claim that, well, the Gospels are stories about what the Lord Jesus Christ did with his disciples, but we're not the disciples. And so an immediate objection might be, well, I'm not Peter. I'm saved. Peter wasn't necessarily saved. This is before the cross. Now after the cross, we're all new creations. Or the apostles are a different class. I'm not in that class. What Jesus commands the apostles, I don't have to do. I want to read something. Galatians 6, 1 and 2. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. So when Tom earlier was saying there's a command here, do you think when Paul wrote Galatians, he had at least heard this story? I think that's right. Paul knew what Jesus had. He's referring the command, the law of Christ. So the idea would be that you are a person like Simon Peter. You're walking with the Lord. But like Simon Peter and like the Lord, there was a context of a relationship. And as a church, we will be over the next few years, Lord willing, uh, in his grace of leading us to put more definition around what it means to be in a relationship in a church. And Simon experienced this rebuke from the Lord out of a context of three years of relationship, and it was well-defined and well-understood, and Simon could trust the Lord to do it well. So just this idea that, that Simon knows the heart of Jesus, and Jesus also knows the need of Simon, and then Paul, who's heard this story has retold that story and taken it from a command that Jesus gave to Simon and takes it and makes it a command that's given to the church. And so just to understand, this is not, you can't get away from this command to let your feet be washed or as Paul tells the Galatians to restore a brother because that's how you fulfill the law of Christ. So, um, I think it would be great to close in prayer. We are going to have a meal here in a few minutes. Um, but let's, let's look to the Lord to ask his blessing upon us to help us recognize when we need our foot washed, feet washed, and when we need to wash one another. Father, you are an amazing God. You have given your son 
to come to the earth and to not only die upon a cross, but work with a people and create uh, a new creation that his body would be full and mature and glorious and clean. And so, Father, we thank you for what you've given your son to do, and we thank you that he is also reigning now, and by his spirit, he is purifying his bride. We pray that your spirit would convict us where we need to become even more defined in how we commit to those who have the requirement and the the necessity to wash us. Lord, help us to not be people who run away from those who call out our dirty feet. Help us to be humble and help us to see our need for the gift in the other. And uh, Father, we ask you that you would do that in this church, that we would not just be a people who have a little bit of zeal and a little bit of knowledge with baggage on the side, but that we would really be the, 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 uh, that which you saw in your heart when you called forth a people. So we ask you that you would help us to support John and Anvesh as they take on these roles tomorrow, take on these responsibilities, to not only pray for them, but also to hear from them, to submit to them, to obey them as they seek to fulfill the law of Christ. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.